0: Message is part of the Media Ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.cornerstone.org, or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, you can open your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 37, where we began last week. We've got about halfway through that chapter. We're going to finish that out this morning. If you have a pew Bible, uh, our new pew Bible, it actually happens to be on page 37. That kind of works out good, Genesis 37, and it's on page 37. And it's a part of this beginning story that we see that there truly is this dysfunction in this family. If you were not here last week, let me give you a quick, maybe 60-second overview because I want you to, to kind of uh, come up with us and, and be a part of this. This is the story in the account the narrative, what we would call, of Joseph. And Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. A lot of people are familiar with Abraham. And Abraham had two sons. And and, uh, do we have that slide? Last week I had a slide up there that I could not even see from here. And I really felt bad because it was kind of important information to know that there was a heritage here. And I can see everybody straining, and uh, so I, I ask for forgiveness for that. But here's how it goes. Abraham, we're kind of familiar with what God called Abraham to do. Well, he has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And uh, one was outside the covenant, one is inside the covenant. Part is, one is part of the plan of God, one is really outside the plan of God. And uh, we see that Abraham very much gives favoritism to the one, Isaac, that he has, and, and uh, that's inside the plan of God, and it kind of puts off Ishmael and as we said last week we are still in that dilemma today on a worldwide basis the division that that caused what didn't stop there Isaac has two sons Esau and Jacob and the Bible is very definite that uh, Isaac loved Esau doesn't say that he didn't love Jacob but that he loved Esau and his mama loved Jacob and so you have this real man's man and you have this mama's boy and they grow up And Jacob is the younger of the two, and yet Jacob is the one that really has the designs on the birthright, the spiritual heritage of the family, and so he does even conniving to do that, and yet he grows up in a home where there's really kind of favoritism being showed. You know, when it says, I mean, I don't know that your parents ever came to you and your dad said, well, I love this one, and your mom says, but I love you, son, it's okay. Now, I don't know that we've ever had to face that dilemma in our life, but that's what really actually happens there. But it carries on to the next generation. All of a sudden, we see that Jacob, Joseph's father, uh, he has 12 sons, and he has a favorite out of those. And it just happens to be Joseph, which is a great gig if you're Joseph. If you're Joseph, it really is kind of, you know, while it lasts, it's it's a good thing that you're getting all this special attention. And yet, you really do grow up kind of with a warped sense of reality. And we saw that on display in the first part of chapter 37, Joseph likes everybody and he's under this false belief that everybody likes him. Uh, some of this is because of the sheltering of his father. His father just, he gives him this coat of many colors and we always talk about this coat of many colors. But we said the real significance of that coat is that it was long-sleeved and it came down to the, the knees. And back in those days, the significance of that wasn't that day, it was just a really pretty coat, but most of the coats of that day, the tunics, were short sleeved and they kind of cut at the waist. The ones that were long sleeved and the ones that went all the way down to the knees were a sign of authority. Those were the masters. Those were the people that were in charge. Those were the bosses. And so almost immediately, even though he is second from the youngest, Joseph, by his father's own display and by his own kind of ordination, says, okay, you're the most important out of these. In three different times, three different times we saw in the scriptures, in the first 11 verses of Genesis 37, where it says, and his brothers hated him. His brothers hated him. His brothers hated him. There was no way that we could miss what was going on there. These, These brothers, they knew this favoritism. And yet we see this generational sin go from generation to generation. And we're going to talk about that today, about what happens to sin in our lives when we don't bring it before the Father and when we don't get it in check And we don't deal with sin in a direct way. But we went on and we began to see that uh, this generational uh, sin of favoritism became to a bullying point. And when we uh, left the story last week, uh, Joseph, because he thinks everybody likes him, uh, was given two dreams by God. And remember we said that we're going to see that all of Joseph's dreams come in pairs. And the first dream is always one where God is initiating something a second dream in Bible times was God sealing it. Saying, okay, this is a definite thing. This isn't just may happen, this seals it. And so, all of Joseph's dreams that he's going to have throughout this whole uh, series, all the way up to Genesis 50, we're going to see that the dreams always come in two God announcing something and God sealing something. And so, that happens. Well, because of his naivety, maybe you can say his arrogance, whatever, Joseph actually goes up to his brothers and said, Hey, guys, let me tell you a dream I had. And the dream is that you're going to bow down to me. And, and they said, Surely you're not saying it. Are we interpreting this dream? They, he tells the, the description of the, the dream and the sheaves of hay and, and all this. And he says, No, that's, that's exactly what the dream was. And they said, "So you mean one day we're going to bow down to you? And Joseph says, Yeah. And I don't know if it just goes over Joseph's head. If he truly is because of this favoritism, he really is naive. If he's arrogant, I, I, we don't really know the complexity. We're not told that Joseph sins in that. The other thing that we just really need to know before we can go into the next step: who gave Joseph the dreams? God. As we said last week, you know. This isn't like God is just standing apart from this dysfunctional family, from all this chaos that's happening in the family. God actually stirs the pudding a little bit. It's a very technical term, stir the pudding. In in, in the Hebrew, uh, no, but God didn't have to give this. As we said last week, he could have said, okay, Joseph, this is a dream that I'm giving to you, but keep quiet. This isn't something you need to share. There's many times in the New Testament that Jesus... Gave a parable and he said, No, hey, don't tell anybody else about this. He told the disciples, this is just for the for this immediate group right now. Because there was a reason why he didn't want it to be known. God could have done that with Joseph, but he doesn't. And so the infuriation of the the brothers are just hitting a a high point. And and yet we gave us fuller, Lord. We're going, okay, Genesis thirty-seven to Genesis chapter fifty, these thirteen chapters are the ups and downs and mostly the downs of Joseph's life. Dilemma after d- dilemma, unfairness after unfairness, Joseph doing the right thing and yet getting the short in the stick. time after time after time after time. Thirteen chapters of that, a lot of years of that. And yet God's answer to that, guys, please don't miss this. God's answer to this comes in just one verse. Genesis 50:20. Not 13 chapters of dilemma, and then 13 chapters of explanation. That would seem just and right. Here's my dilemma, and so God, I'm glad to know that you're sympathetic to that and that you're understanding of that. No, one verse, Genesis fifty twenty. This is just the first part of it. But God's answer to all of this, years and years of unfairness, of all these things, he gives one answer. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, God was just simply saying this. Joseph, you've never been alone. Joseph, there's not one thing that has happened in your life that I'm not aware of. And Joseph, believe it or not, I'm actually working that for two things, for my glory and for your good. Here's the, here's the tough, tough question this morning, guys. Is one verse enough for you? I mean, 13 chapters of dilemma of your life, 13 chapters of unfairness, you do the right thing. Over and over and over, Joseph does the right thing, and yet he always gets the short end of the stick. Uh, Is one verse enough? See, that's where we're going to be sometimes in our faith. God is not going to take your one dilemma that's, uh, let's say, that is a week long in its making or a year long in its making and then give you verse after verse after verse or explanation after explanation like that. We do have many verses, but sometimes God is going to say, I am God. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Sometimes all we're going to have is the victory of Christ, and that's all we're going to have. And He's never going to explain, except for in a couple of places, Romans eight twenty eight, and a couple other verses that we can kind of quote, and say, "Okay, God, You are working things for good." As people of faith, guys, we have to come to the place: Is that enough for you? With well, the simple answer for me, I'll answer it. In my frailty, no. In my mind and my heart, yes. Do I believe that God is always working everything, even the unfairness, the injustices of life, for his glory and for my good? I really do believe that. But when the pain of that is on, the furnace is turned up to a thousand degrees, sometimes you want more. And I'm not saying that God is a stingy God. Please don't hear me that God is a stingy God. Because we have to, to rest. Is this truth or is it not truth? Do we believe it or do we not? Because sometimes all you're going to get is a verse, a promise, a truth. That's all you're going to get. And it's not that he's a stingy God, and it's not that he's just trying to test you and see how far he can push you. It's just that he's going, okay, I gave you the answer of Christ. There is no other answer. And here's our dilemma as Christians following after a holy God. He's given but one answer. And guys, he's not going to give a second answer. That one answer is sufficient. And that's by faith that we have to come to that place in the, minute, in the midst of all these hurts. Okay, Christ is, Christ is enough. Okay, God, thank you for Christ. He is enough. And sometimes that can be our only plea and our only prayer before this holy God. It's so, okay, God, you haven't explained anything. It may be years. You know when this verse came in Joseph's life? Near the very, very end. After years and years and years of hardship, then it comes. I'm going, okay, God, can you kind of clue me in along the way? You know, every three months, can you just kind of give me a clue? And yet we know we've read. If you've read the rest of the, the, the Bible, you know in Revelation, you know Here, here's the thing, guys. At the end, the saints of God are with God, and we win. And, and here's the dilemma. This is not to make light of our hardships. This is not to make light of tragedy in our life this does not make light of the dysfunction of our families that may be the only answer that god gives he may not ever give you an explanation of why you went through years and years of suffering uh, torment and all this he will just say christ is enough trust me and i'm working for my glory and for your good i asked ricky to paint this we're actually you don't use the word raffle in a baptist church do you uh, we're not going to raffle this off. You know, it's not going to cost you anything, but we are going to put everybody's name in. And at the end of the series, uh, we're going to give this away to, to somebody. And I, I, I said that we would do that as long as my name could be put in there. Because I have a place in my house where I could really use this right here. Um, but, but, guys, we're going to keep this out for the whole series because here's the thing. E- each week, we're going to see the dilemma and the craziness and the heaviness of all these things. And yet, I'm going to keep on pointing because we are to race to this. In these 13 chapters, we're racing to this truth. And this morning, we have to race to this truth. That is years in the making, years before its fulfillment, and yet Joseph has to race to this truth even before it becomes a reality. Okay, with all that in mind, when we left last week, uh, look at verse 12. We pick up uh, chapter 37, Genesis, verse 12. Joseph and his brothers are separated uh, at the time. Uh, The family has gone, or the brothers have gone, to pasture the the sheep. Um, Back in those days, they were very nomadic people. They would move their very existence from place to place. The Jewish people were a little bit different. The Jewish people said, "Ah, let's not move all the time. Let's establish a home. But knowing that our sheep need to feed, we'll just go out there and we'll either buy somebody to manage them or pay somebody to manage them, or we'll go out there and do it ourselves. And so the Jewish people were the first ones really not to be as nomadic as the other people of that area. And they would establish a home, let's say in Jerusalem. And then when times were needed that the sheep had to go to another place, they would take their sheep and their flocks there and they would pasture them there. Uh, The brothers have done that. They're going out and they're pasturing the, the sheep about 50 miles away from their home. Look what it says in verse 12 and 13. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, that's Jacob. Remember, Jacob and Israel, same person. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock near Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. A very obedient young man. He said, Good, I'll, I'll do that, Dad, whatever you want. And uh, he goes, and it, this really is kind of strange. A lot of scholars wonder why Jacob, Israel, would do this, because... Um, this is not really friendly territory. Now, the brothers have ten of them, okay? Probably Benjamin is not with them. We don't know if Benjamin's even born uh, quite yet, and it's, so it's one of those things. But there's ten brothers that are going, and so they kind of have them off, and now he's going to send Joseph by himself. And guess what he has on his back? Coat of many colors, kind of attractive for thieves and you know, people that just want to make trouble. This isn't like you're, he's going in the stealth of night. So he goes out and he's going 50 miles, more than likely that would have been about four or five day journey. He's going there, uh, go find out a report about your brothers, how it's going. So he goes and he's very obedient and, and look what happens. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, that is the brothers, and before he came near them, they conspired against to kill him. Okay, we get right into the midst of the, the anger here. This dysfunctional family and this generational sin of favoritism now has become a boiling pot. They're sitting there. They're pasturing the sheep. And when you're pasturing the, the sheep, for the most part, you're, you're a lot of watch time. You know, sheep are just kind of boring animals. They're just eating, so you're just kind of looking. They look off to the distance, and they see this figure coming. As it gets closer and closer, they, they realize this is Joseph, their brother. Now, how could they tell that, more than likely? Coat of many colors. Look at this guy. He's about Joseph's height. Looks like Joseph. Ah, it's the coat. This is Joseph. Now, here's my question. In your mind, did they just at that moment go, you know, let's kill him. Or do you think that perhaps there had been something stirring in their heart? What did it say three different times in verses 1 through 11? They hated him. This is not something that just started. They didn't see him and all of a sudden decided, you know, we could just kill him and and nobody would know the difference. Now, here's the thing, guys. Generational sin, sin in our own life, it boils and it sometimes comes to a place where it just kind of erupts. And they see, you know, this has been in their heart for a long time. They hated Joseph. They hated Joseph. They hated Joseph. And now there is opportunity for that hatred to go into action. Some people believe that time heals all wounds. The reality I have found is that time heals some wounds. There are some things and there are some wounds and some hurts in lives that time and the passing of time does help. But there are some things, folks, that when they're deep and there's anger and there's frustration, that time itself, ignoring something, doesn't make it better. And this is one of the things that we see here, that this this phrase that time heals all wounds doesn't help in this situation. Some time apart from Joseph, they didn't say, well, you know... You know, he's such a dreamer, and he is kind of a cute little brother, and, you know, we just need to hug him next time we see him. No, his very form is on the horizon, and it gets closer. They identify him as Joseph, and they say, let's kill him. This was not the first thought. It did not begin in this verse. It has been stirring in their hearts. We have no timetable. We don't know if it's six weeks, six months. We don't know. All we know is that the previous incident with the brothers, with the dreams and with the coat, now this venom has come. And look what happens in verse 19 and 20. They said to one another, here comes what? This dreamer. They did not forget about this dream. Here comes this dreamer. They don't even call him by name. Here comes this dreamer. This is his identity now. He thinks that he's going to be over us one day. He had this fanciful dream that we're going to bow down to him. Here comes this dreamer. It has become his identification for the brothers. Not here's our brother Joseph. No, here comes this dreamer. He's known by this hurt and by this uh, uh, anger they have toward him. Verse 20, Come now, let's kill him and throw him into uh, one of the pits. And they will say uh, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see that he will become what will become of his dreams this all centers around this favoritism the sins of a grandfather a great grandfather and a father now are coming to roost in joseph's life let's see what this dreamer does let's see if he really is going to bow down to us when we throw him down in the pit now remember guys they're out in the middle of the you know, in a very arid, desert-like place. Yes, there's some pastures from time to time, but they throw him into a pit that is empty. He can't get out of. There's not water there. We're told that there's not water there. This is a death sentence. This isn't, well, you know, if he's really athletic, maybe he can climb out. No, they knew, let's throw him in here, and we're going to kill him. What is fresh on their minds? The dreams. And it seems that they would have certainly carried out the murder But the oldest son, Reuben, who's already kind of in bad graces with the father, there's there's some incidents that happened before, and he comes up, and being the oldest, he he tries to reason with them. Look what he says in verse 22. Reuben said, remember, he's the oldest brother. Reuben said, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him and come, uh, come out of their hand to restore him to the father. He goes, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're, nah, let's not kill him. Nah, let's beat him to a pulp. Let's, let's throw him in here, and, and he'll die, but there won't be blood on our hands. Now, two things are going on. Number one, Reuben has a plan to come back and rescue. He, he really does. He's, he's thinking against this whole plan of killing his brother. But there's something else coming on, why this wins over for the brothers, Have you ever been in a sin where you talked yourself out that it was a sin? (laughs) Thank you for that testimony there. Yeah. I mean, mean, I've used this illustration before, but but remember when we were talking about when we were kids, you and your sibling there in the backseat, don't touch him. And so you're not, you're just going. And you're doing everything, but, but I didn't touch him. And there's this technicality of, okay, I'm not touching him. I'm not really sinning. And you're going, yeah, you are. Because the whole thing is you're supposed to be on your side, and, and, and he's supposed to be on the other side. Guys, you know, when we see that in the back seat with, with children, we go, how childish. But I promise you, I promise you, every one of us have done that with our sin before well, I really didn't say that. I didn't really do that. And, and we're kind of like the Pharisees of Jesus' time, that their hearts were wrong, and yet they said, well, we didn't really do this. And Jesus said, look, I'm telling you, you did sin. And Jesus was always going, look, you've heard it been said, and he would kind of quote a verse, and he said, but I tell you, you know, for example, he said, you've heard it been said you know, that you should not you know, lust after a woman or have you know, these bad thoughts. He said, I, I tell you, you've lusted in your heart when you've, or you've committed this adultery when you've lusted in your heart. They knew not to commit adultery, but Jesus said, look, it's a heart matter. It's not a matter of, I didn't touch, I didn't touch, I didn't touch. I'm telling you, that part of us is in every single human. I promise you that every one of us Know the rules, and sometimes the better we know the rules, like the Pharisees, we know kind of how to get around the rules. And Jesus is forever saying, well, you know, will you forget the rules for the second? Will you look at your heart? That's what's happening here. Reuben comes, in and they go along with Reuben's plan, because they go, hey, look, now we can really go back and say, we did not shed his blood. Because we're just going to put him in this hall. So it's not like we're really shedding his blood. Is he going to die? Yes. Is it a death sentence? Exactly. But we didn't beat him and you know, pull him to the point where we actually have blood on our hands. And so they kind of buy into this, that they think that uh, this is going to go pretty good. And then look what happens Joseph finally arrives, and their plot becomes a reality. Verse 23 24. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him in a pit. And the pit was empty and there was no water in it. They officially have now sealed the death of their brother. And yet they have spilled no blood. And yet their hearts have sinned. What is the real status of their hearts? Look at verse 25. Look at the first part of verse 25. What does it say? You throw your brother in there, a death sentence. But oh, I did, we didn't touch him. <laughs> you know? We used uh, a pole to push him over there. We didn't actually touch him. He's going to die. And then they sit down to eat. We're not told this, but guys, more than likely, they are feasting upon something. The word in the Hebrew of eating there isn't just, okay, they had their next meal. They're, they're actually having kind of a celebratory kind of, this, this is a good meal. And more than likely, it's because Joseph had brought from Jacob, from the father, some, some good things to eat that you usually don't have when you're out pasturing sheep in the middle of, of, of a wilderness. And, and so their conscience is just bare. Their hearts, you can see, are evil. And we see that, and we begin to see that, uh, you know, they leave Joseph to starve and to thirst to death. They have this dinner. Listen real closely, guys. This is where unresolved sin can take us. The death of relationships. The, the murder of Relationships. A coldness and a hardness that we would sin before a holy God and sin amongst our folks and our people and our families and not have a repentance going, man, you know, I just did evil. That's where sin takes us. And that's where they are. The thought turned into an action. And the action brings about a result. I mean, how many times have we had a thought? And instead of taking that thought in confession before a holy God and say, God, will you just rid me of this thought? Will you take this this evilness? I just want that person to, you know. Because maybe, again, what we were talking about last week, maybe they got the promotion at work because they're the boss's son or the boss's daughter. And you work twice as hard as they do, and yet that promotion should have been yours, but because of life's unfairness, they get the promotion. A lot of unfair things happen. Remember one of our truths from last week? As long as we're on terra firma, this planet, unfairness is going to happen. It's a broken world. And yet this brokenness now has caused this to happen. Uh, look at James 1, 14-15, New Testament. Look what, look what the Bible says. But each person is tempted when they, he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to what? To sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see kind of a, a flow chart going there? And, and what James is telling us is, look, in, in every one of us, because we're fallen people in a fallen world, hopefully saved by the grace of God and, and the powerful act of Christ, but we're still susceptible to these these desires, the old man, the flesh, whatever kind of term that you want to put on there, we still have those thoughts and those feelings sometimes. And the Bible says, be very, very careful. You're going to have these thoughts, but take them to God and confess them, deal with them directly, and, and get past them. Either through repentance, through confession, through whatever it is. Because here's what happens with unresolved Sin our thoughts, just thoughts in our lives. Thoughts, when given opportunity, turn into sin. That's what it says. When it's given, it's conceived, it turns into an action. And that action brings a result. And that's what happened here. The brothers, we don't know how long they were just sitting around in the fire. Man, if old Joseph was here right now, I'd hit him. Oh, I'd hit him too. Well, oh, not before me. I mean, they've been talking about this dreamer for a very long time. And then this dreamer shows up on the horizon and is walking toward them. And desire turns into action. Guys, we can't sit there and say, well, the devil made me do it, but I can tell you this. You have evil desire. You have, uh, you know, our propensity towards sin in our own lives. You don't take it before a holy God. You, you don't, you know, deal with it in a biblical way. Satan didn't make you do it, but he will give you the logs, he will give you the kindling, he will give you the, the gasoline, and he will light the, he'll give you the match. Please do not hear that all of our sins are because of an evil Satan walking around, but please do hear that he is more than welcome to help you when we don't deal with sin in our lives in a direct way before a holy God and through the, the, the prescription of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that we have here happens over and over and over in our lives unresolved desires turn into a murderous plot and the intended result is literal death in in this case they they want their brother to die I've seen it in my own life I've seen it in the lives of others I've witnessed the death of marriages I've seen the death of, of, of church relationships where people did, they, they didn't resolve their anger and their frustration. They didn't take it to God. They didn't seek out counseling. They, they didn't do whatever. And, and they, all of a sudden, opportunity came, and that opportunity turned into a further sin, and it brought a death to that relationship. It doesn't have to be hate. It can be as simple as frustration. God gives us a prescription. Some of the Bible is very descriptive. A lot of this story is descriptive. But some of the scripture is very prescriptive. Okay, so it's like, here's what you do when you find yourselves in this dilemma. Look real quick, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, then we'll get back to, to Joseph. Be angry and do not sin. In other words, God is telling us right there, a reality of life, guys. Anger is an emotion. He's the one who gave us emotions. He didn't make us robots. Anger is going to be a part of the human dilemma, Okay. Life. But he says, be angry and don't sin. And in other words, you have this emotion. It's a real emotion. There's probably even a reason for you to have frustration or whatever. Maybe you are the one that's been treated unfairly. And so there's anger there. I mean, I don't think it was real wise for Joseph to go around with his pretty little coat on going, hey, brothers, come here, let me tell you about a dream. In this dream that I happen to have twice, I can give you both versions, version 1 and version 2, you're bound down to me. That's really not all that wise when you're second to the smallest. And yet he does that. We don't know if there's real intent there. We can say that it's not wise. We don't know if it's sin, but he certainly is not wise in doing it. But here, the brothers are angry. And yet the Bible's prescription is be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because what does verse 27 say? Verse 27. Because this isn't just some preacher saying, well, watch out for that devil. But the Bible says that. It says emotions are going to come, frustrations are going to come, unfairness is going to come, but deal with it directly. Hopefully even by the end of the day. Why? Because we do not want to give a foothold to the devil. We don't want to give opportunity for Satan to bring some logs and the next day say, hey, here's a can of gasoline. Hey, I just happen to have a match. And this is what the Bible tells us. And this is also the hope of the gospel. God is not telling you, just swallow hard and and do away with your anger. No, we bring that frustration, we bring that unfairness to the foot of the cross and we come and say, okay, God... If there was anybody ever that dealt with unfairness in life, it was Jesus Christ, your son. He died a death that wasn't even his fault. He did it in our place because of the love that he has for us. The very heart of the gospel is that Christ has given us an answer to all of this. But it means that we deal with it directly. I believe with all my heart that Jesus never took one step out of the Father's plan that his death on the cross was not a second too early and it was not a second too late. That he walked in unison with the Father's plan. Why? Because he always brought things back to the Father. He never sinned, but he was always talking to the Father. And here's our our prescription. But Pastor, I understand that, and, and there's been times that that would be my story. But Pastor, for right now, I'm the offended one. Somebody has been unfair to me, Pastor. And, and what do you do if you're the Joseph in this story and, and not the brothers? You, I see this prescription for the brothers that they need to, to take it before a holy God. But, but what do I do if I'm the Joseph here? What do you do? You, you, you run that there's a holy God who has purpose in all things. Is that verse enough? Is, is, the, is the finished work of Christ, is that enough in those days when it's just kind of all coming down on you and you're the Joseph? Not the brothers, you're, you're the Joseph and life is just unfair. See, that's all that God gives us. Look at verses 26 and 27. Judah said to his brothers, What profit if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites because there was this Ishmaelite band, a caravan coming along and uh, they had all these different things and they were looking for people that they could bring into slavery and then go sell as slaves. So it's okay. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our, not ha- our hand not be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. In other words, again, they're saying, we're not going to harm him. Yeah, let's not kill him. At least we can trade him. We can get some money. And we'll profit from it. And we don't have to ever say that we killed our brother. His blood won't be upon our hands. And so again, they're kind of reasoning out. They're trying to say, where's a safe ground where we can still exact this upon Joseph? But yeah, you know, we're not going to really be, you know, considered guilty of this. Verse 28. Please don't miss this, guys. Then many traitors passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And what does the last part of that verse say? Is Egypt going to play pretty big in this story? Not today. Not tomorrow. But months and years from now, it's going to be strategic. See, that's why you've got to run to this, guys. You've got to run here. Well, what Do you think Joseph could have just put a knapsack together with his beautiful little coat and said, you know, I just feel God, God wants me to go to Egypt, and I just hope that I land there. You know, I'm going to get there one day, and I hope that I can get a job. Maybe I can even get a job in a very strategic place, and uh, God can use me there. That could have happened, but more than likely not. What happens in the midst of this dilemma where they want to kill their brother, that they see these Ishmaelites come along they say, okay, so that we don't even have to deal with this guilty conscience that we killed our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery. They get the profit from it, this 20 shekels of silver, and they can say, we didn't kill our brother. And life will just go on. And all the time, God is working good out of their evil. He puts him in Egypt. Look what it says, verse 36, and then we're going to close. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. It's a pretty strategic place we're going to find out. It's a place that you can be noticed. This is the guy who's got some pull. This is the guy of means and Joseph just happens to land in a very strategic place. He didn't call the shot. He just said, "Okay, can I be sold to somebody that years from now is going to be very influential and then I can kind of get in good with the pharaoh and you know there's going to be a famine in the land." And I need to be in a strategic place where I can be over all the food and the allotment of food because during this time, there's really going to be a need to to save some food for a while so that we can make it through this famine. None of that is on Joseph's mind. Certainly, it is not on the brother's mind. But guys, get this, get this. It is on God's mind. And so that's all we've got, guys. I don't say that as a point of desperation. I don't say that as a point of, well, you know, I hope this is sufficient. It is sufficient. The finished work of Christ is sufficient. And sometimes there's going to be 13 chapters of your life where it just says, short in the stick, unfair, hatred and anger, and all God's going to say, okay, they meant that evil against you, but I'm going to work it for my glory and for your good. I am ever working out my plan in the midst of your lives. He's not excusing away our sins, folks. He is not excusing away the hardship. Jacob is at home, and he rents his clothes. He said, my son, the son that I loved, is dead? Because what did the brothers do? They bring this uh, coat back. They killed a lamb. They put blood all over it. They shred it. And they said, okay, Dad, we, we don't know what happened, but all we is is they even have the gall to ask Jacob. We're not sure. Do you think this is Jacob? I mean, Joseph's coat? It actually, they actually go ask their father that. And he rents his clothes and he goes in mourning. Typical mourning was a week. For Moses, they, they mourned for a month. For all that we can tell here, Jacob goes into a lifelong of mourning until he finds out differently. Frustration, anger, unattended, turns into action, and action brings results. And results are heartbreaking, and they're hard. On the other end, when when you're the recipient of that unfairness, when you're the Joseph of the story and life has been unfair, you still have to believe, guys, you still have to believe that even though evil is being done against you and it is not right and it's not fair and it's ten against one, that God is still working out for his glory and for your good. And those are the days that we bow in prayer and we cry out to Holy God. And say, God, my, my faith is weak. My faith is so weak. But you are strong. Hide me. Hide me in your strength. Cover me with your grace. Fill my heart with hope because there is no hope. God, I am desperate for you to work in the midst of this. So here's our application, and then we'll pray. Unconfessed sin, frustration, anger, resentment, brokenness, undealt with it's just going to boil until there's opportunity. And one day, you're going to see your Joseph walk and you're going to go, I'm going to kill that guy. But I'm not going to touch him. I'm not going to touch him. <laughs> but you're going to devise a plan of, of, of evil in the midst of that. Deal with your sin. Do not let it conceive and, uh, your, your frustration, your anger. Deal with it. Bring it to a holy God who's provided the, the way of Christ to, to have forgiveness and restoration. doesn't mean you have to love that person in the sense that, okay, now that person has brought you so much harm that you have to sit down and have dinner with them every single night. What it means is that you have freed yourself from the burden of that anger and that frustration. You've taken it to God, and you've placed it on the finished work of Christ. Application number two, and then we'll close. If you're the Joseph right now in your life story, and life is unfair and you're in chapter 3 of 13 chapters, a very long, dry period where you keep on getting the the short end of the stick, run, run, run as fast as you can and hold on that God is working things for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, we see in this story, Father, uh, so many applications to our life. And yet, Father, the answer is the same as what we saw last week, we have to believe and trust in your sovereignty, Father, that that nothing that happens here is without your notice. And, Father, nothing is beyond your ability to correct. But even in those times, Father, that you allow the pain to continue for a day, a week, a month, Father, we know, we trust that you are working for your glory and for our good. So, Father, I lift up the people that are in part of this 13 chapters of, of hard, hard times. I lift up the ones today, Father, that feel like they have been beat upon, they have been left for dead, and that it just isn't fair. Father, that you would bring hope and a spark of light to their, to their mind and to their heart today and say, I know your heart my child. And I promise you I am working for my glorious kingdom and for your good. Father, help us to trust that you are sovereign, holy God, and yet intimate enough to be Father. And we sing this last song, Father, as just a proclamation of our faith and our trust in that. Father, for those that are dealing with sin in their lives I and mean, maybe they think they're doing a pretty good job of just keeping their mouth shut and, and yet inside they're boiling, Father, I pray that you'd give them the strength to come before you and ask for forgiveness to deal with it, Father, before it turns into sin and sin brings death of relationships. So, Father, uh, we give you this time and we trust in your spirit to move among us as so we pray all this in the hope of Christ. Amen.